Also, my privilege to introduce John Stodgel to you, who is a visiting missionary. You know, I think I saw a stat, maybe eight full-time um, ministry partners or missionaries or pastors have come from our midst in the last few decades, and John's one of them. He was uh, just one of us. He was a nurse in town. His wife um, worked here in Sumter. But, you know, John was called to be an elder with us with this session. He helped lead, shepherd our church here, and then felt called to go overseas. And it was pretty fun to watch a pastor who really kind of impacted him, brought him to one place, and then has now called him to Belize, a different place than he originally went, I believe, six years ago. So if you didn't hear him in Sunday school share with us, um, you'll have the privilege of hearing him preach. And I'll just say, he ain't a pastor. He ain't a preacher. He said that himself. But um, the hand and the favor of the Lord is on him and his wife. Um, if you know them, you know and believe and understand what I'm saying. And so I believe we will just hear a good word from the Lord this morning. So, John, I invite you to come. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sean. I appreciate that. And uh, Karen and I are really excited to be in South Carolina. I think that's where we are. It's been a whirlwind. We've been here for about three and a half weeks. We've traveled over 3,000 miles and slept in, I think she said, 13 or 14 beds so far. So it's, um, it's busy on a home assignment, but we're here for three months and we're excited. I bring greetings from the Presbyterian Church in Belize uh, to you guys. And um, like Sean said, I was a elder in this church. And why that's significant, I mentioned some things this morning in in Sunday school, and I sort of led up to why this is significant. If I was not an ordained elder in this church, and you guys sent me, uh, last General Assembly, the Presbyterian Church in America made a ruling on MTW, and anyone in leadership had to be ordained. Had I not been ordained by you guys, I could not have continued to do the leadership role that I'm doing in Belize. So praise God that he works all things out. But like Sean said, I am a, a ruling elder, not a teaching elder, and we're going to do the best we can. He's called us to preach uh, in Belize, which was not what we thought we signed up for. But like I shared, Jim Whistler gave us a plaque uh, when we went into missions six, seven years ago. Blessed are those who are flexible, for they shall not be broken. <laughs> And that's, that has certainly been the case. Karen and I are excited to be in South Carolina. I think she's helping with the children. I, hopefully she'll join us before the service is over. I'm not sure the, the children's message time. But anyway, we appreciate y'all leaving the freezer door open last night. It was 96 degrees in Belize yesterday. <laughs> and we're about to freeze to death. And I uh, appreciate all the pollen. Uh, we haven't dealt with pollen in about six years because we don't have pollen. It's always summer, um, but uh, we'll, we'll deal with that. But we do appreciate warm water. Uh, I didn't realize I was a warm water connoisseur, but it's been so nice to shave and consistently have warm water. Uh, that's a real true blessing. But uh, anyway, greetings from the Presbyterian Church in Belize. And uh, if you weren't in Sunday school, hopefully we'll get some more time to share.
But let's turn our attention uh, to the message this morning. And we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 17 in just a little bit. But I kind of want to ask you a question. Do you remember where you were on September the 11th, 2001? Where were you on 2001, September 11? Some people are nodding. I remember very plainly that I was at Bowwater. Bowwater is a paper company, and I was working for them in North Alabama. Uh, They were corporate office here in Greenville, South Carolina. And uh, we had just finished our morning production meeting and uh, learned that the world as we once knew it was being turned upside down. I called Karen on the phone and I said, turn on the television, something's happening. She was homeschooling our kids. That Tuesday morning, if you will remember, uh, there was an orchestrated attack on our uh, own soil, a terrorist attack. Four planes hijacked. Two of them crashed into the Twin Towers or the World Trade Center. One crashed into the Pentagon And the last one would have crashed in the White House had the brave people on the plane not fought back. And they crashed instead in Pennsylvania. That morning, 2,977 people died. However, 25,000 people were injured and over 10 billion, with a B, dollars worth of infrastructure was realized here in the United States. This orchestrated attack was carried out by 19 hijackers who turned the world upside down. Just think about that number. Only 19 people changed everything. Think about all the victims. Think about all the families and the relatives, all of those who died and all of the innocent people who were so impacted by that event. The terrorists themselves were impacted. This changed the course of world travel forever. Think about in this church, 19 people. That's probably less than would sit in four pews here, 19 people. That small number of 19 can certainly cause trouble all over the world. But small groups of people have always had an impact on our world and have had the ability to change our world. Fortunately, this change doesn't always have to be because of negativism or hate field. What I would like to do this morning is for us to look at a New Testament passage and concentrate on another little small group of people led by Paul and Silas and see how they changed the world, how they turned the world upside down, but for the better. It's a story where um, Paul comes to the town of Thessalonica in the region of Macedonia. And for those of you who are current historians, that is really where modern day Greece is. And so what I'd like to do is read for us in Acts chapter 17. And we're going to start kind of in the first part of chapter one and pick up the story with Paul and Silas and this small group of people. This is the word of the Lord. Then they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had suffered uh, 
and raised again from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great number of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded became envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathered a mob, sent all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they drugged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them and those uh, and that are acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they trouble the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. That's kind of funny because when you go to a Central American country, if you give a little dollar, you get out of a lot of problems. But Jason apparently provided security and, and the rest, and they were let go. In verse 10, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by the night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and preached the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed and not uh, a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica learned that the word of God was being preached by Paul in Berea, they came also and stirred up the crowd. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and he received a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed they departed. Now when Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. When he saw the city was full uh, or given over to idols, therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Greeks uh, worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of a foreign God because he preaches to them of Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Agapetus saying, may we know what new doctrine it is that you are speaking of. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and foreigners who were there uh, spent their time in nothing else but telling uh, either to tell or to hear some new thing. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, as we look into your word and we see the example of Paul and uh, Ty, uh, 
Timothy and, and Silas, Lord, we just ask that you would help this to be meaningful for us. Lord, please help our minds not to be distracted. Uh, help us to be able to hear clearly your message for us this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So it's kind of odd for me to stand up here all by myself because I'm used to a translator. We do everything in Spanish and in English, and I stand next to a translator, so it gives me time to look at my notes and know what next to say. So be patient, but we will get through this. 19 people, 19 people. There were 19 hijackers on September the 11th, and they changed things forever. I pray that there are more, and I know that there are more than 19 Christians in this church this morning. What impact can we have on our world? Think about the Old Testament. Think about Father Abraham. God called Abraham out, just a few of his family members, himself, his servants, and he went off and God promised in Genesis chapter 12 that he would become the father of many nations. He would become the father of the Israelite nation, the Jewish nation as we now know it. Think about Jesus. Jesus had 12 disciples. He had 70 really close friends. And according to Luke 10, Jesus sent them out to do ministry and to do missions. And they are described as turning the world upside down. There are over 1,700 PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, churches in this country there are over 335 members. In my church, in the Presbyterian Church in Belize, there's 16 churches with over 350 members. But in the world as a whole, um, there are over 2 billion people that claim to be Christians in the visible church. All of these various dominations around the world... You can't tell me that 19 people who set out to destroy, to hurt, and to kill have more power than 2 billion people who call themselves Christians, who call themselves to be gods, who love or call to love others and do positive, have positive impact and change on the betterment of the world. It only takes a few people if they are truly committed to what they believe in, to change the world for good or for bad. Looking at our text this morning, the early uh, Christians were accused in verse 6, we see that they, these are those who have turned the world upside down. I don't truthfully believe that Paul intended to turn the world upside down. However, I do believe that Paul wanted to turn sinners right side up. One of the things that our text is or gives us is a good handle on how we should behave as Christians in a modern world and how we should deal with secular non-Christian people. I think it is, um, it is also a passage that we see Paul learning and growing as well. The chapter begins, as we have read, the chapter begins with this small group of people going to Thessalonica. Paul goes into the synagogue, which is his practice, and he begins to teach the Jews. 
that Jesus is the Christ. The Jews had been waiting for a Christ or for a Messiah. And now Paul tells them that the Messiah has come and that the Messiah was actually Jesus. So we can see in verse 3 that he talks about the suffering uh, Messiah. And he talks about a Messiah that was raised from the dead. The people that were listening to him, the Jews, were like, no, he's going to come and he's going to relieve us of Rome. And he's going to make a great nation out of us again, like the time of our father, uh, first uh, beloved king, King David. In verse 5, we see the Jews, some of them were envious of Paul and his small little group because they missed the significance of the resurrection. They missed that key point. First thing that we note about Paul is that he's direct and he's very passionate and he maybe is a little bit abrasive. Time and time again, we see in the book of Acts that Paul finds himself in conflict with the community and with the culture around him. We see things in Thessalonica that that they really get bad for Paul and Silas and they must leave town. The next stop is Berea. Berea is about 44 miles away from Thessalonica. And Luke, who we believe wrote the book of Acts, says that Berea, it's interesting in verse 11, he says that these are people of a more noble and fair-minded than the Thessalonians. But those Thessalonians couldn't leave their anger alone for Paul. They couldn't resist. And so when they learned that he was in Berea, as we read, preaching the gospel, they sent people to Berea to cause trouble for Paul. So Paul and his little group leave Berea. At this time, it appears that this small group gets divided for a brief period of time. And Paul finds himself alone in Athens, waiting for his companions to join him. The book of Acts says that while he was there, verse 16 says, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And I don't know if you've ever looked around our city in our community and realized we're full of idols. And Paul realizes this. He spent his time preaching to fellow Jews and uh, God-fearing Greeks or Gentiles, people that weren't Jews, but he also finds himself approached by a, a different kind of people, uh, a different kind of faith and a different kind of philosophies. And Acts refers to these as Epicureans and Stoics. Now this morning, we're not going to share, you know, really what they believed or I don't think it's, it's uh, really uh, time to take, take into that consideration. What is important, however, is that these are non-Christian people. These are probably people of a different culture, but for sure, they have a different worldview than Paul and his little group. And so we're going to learn a lot, hopefully this morning, about how Paul deals with them and how that can impact us. Most of us, I would dare say all of us, deal with non-Christian people in our everyday work. And so my question is, how do we deal with them? We don't want to be looked at by non-Christians in our community as a bunch of troublemakers. Nobody likes to be labeled that. Troublemakers destroy and they wreak havoc. 
Uh, we want to be, instead, as Christians, we want to build people up. We want to encourage people and we want to love people and we want to do justice. What Paul does here is three very important things uh, that we want to look at this morning. These things we need to do when we engage non-Christian friends. Let's look at Paul's example this morning and apply it to us as we invite people to church or we want to share our faith or we want to call someone to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. First point here is Paul goes to them. We see this in the passage. Paul goes to them. He doesn't just wait for them to come to him. He meets them where they are. In verse 22, we see that Paul goes to the Agapetus. That is an important hill to the people of Athens. Uh, it is believed where the mystical god Ares had been murdered. So he goes to their very important place. Paul went to where the people were and he shared. His new friends in verse 19, it says, they brought him uh, and brought him to the Agapetus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is that you are speaking of? Unfortunately, many of us are reluctant to go to people and to ask them to become Christians and to join us in church. Most of us wait and we hope that they will come, but we never invite people to experience Jesus Christ. This text teaches us that we must engage our culture. Most of us, unfortunately, our, our knack for evangelism is this. We sit in our pews and we hope that some little lost soul would plop right next to us and hear the gospel. Well, this is kind of like us going to Lake Santee down here in our boats and launching our boat and sitting in the middle and hoping that a fish is going to jump in our laps, in our boats. I won't say it wouldn't happen, but I'll just say when I fished that lake, it never happened to me. Most people do not walk into church without an invitation. And that invitation comes from one of you. What we need to do is to go out where people are and to invite them in. You don't necessarily have to knock on the door of a stranger. You don't necessarily have to stand at the market or the food store and hand out tracts, though those may be effective ways to invite people. You and I have people that we know that don't go to church. We have people that we know that don't have a personal relationship with Christ Jesus. So how do you share Christ? How do you share Christ? Well, how do you share your favorite television show or a movie that you saw? Or how do you share a book that you read that you want someone else to be interested in and might enjoy? How do you share a great restaurant that you find? Karen and I were traveling through Birmingham and we found a great seafood restaurant uh, called the Crab Barracks. So after church, ask me about it. I'll tell you about it. And I hate to even bring this up in church, but how do you share about your favorite football team? I know that can divide people a lot. Uh, I remember when we were in North Alabama, the first time we left Chattanooga and we went to North Alabama, 
to, to go to work at this sawmill. And uh, there was an elder who met us at the door, greeted us. We told him who we were. We were brand new, had a little three kids. And uh, Coach Percy Lee said, well, that's good, son. Good to have you here. So who are you for? You're not from Tennessee, are you? And I was thinking, well, we're coming to church. I guess I'm for Jesus. And I said that. And he said, no, I mean Alabama or Auburn. <laughs> so how do you tell about your favorite sports team? How do, in Belize, what will polarize people is, is politics. The reds over here and the blues over here. Once every five years we have elections. And you want to you get people riled up and tell tell their business, they start talking about the red PUP or the blue UDP, United People's Party. The point is, will you share with people in the place where you are? You share in your communities, you share in your work, you share in your school, and you share with your neighbors. You need to find a way to share Christ that is culturally appropriate and it is comfortable for you and the person you want to share with. And I think the key here is that we need to be more intentional. We need to be intentional about sharing our faith. That's what we see Paul is doing here. He finds a way to share about Christ in a way that is culturally appropriate for the people of Athens and in a way that everyone feels comfortable with. In our New Testament lesson, Paul meets people where they are, and so should we. Secondly, we see Paul, uh, what he does here in the book of Acts, is that he respects people for uh, their beliefs. Even if he doesn't agree with them, and even if he may even have trouble with their beliefs, he still shows them respect. When Paul arrived in Athens, he sees all the various temples and he sees all the various idols in the various uh, places of worship. But when he talks to people who worship these false gods, he doesn't attack them. He doesn't put them down and he doesn't insult them or degrade them. But he also doesn't avoid them. He confronts them. And that's what we need to do. I suspect that this was a challenge for Paul because he was very passionate for God and for the truth. I remember my younger brother, Jim, is two years younger than me. Uh, wanted to sh- we were all excited as, as uh, probably young high school students. And Jim wanted to share his faith. And so he started arguing with this guy and arguing with this guy, and they never could come together. And finally, Jim just got so frustrated. He said, well, you're just going to go to hell then. And he walked away. (laughs) I don't believe that's what Paul would be a good example for. But in this case, Paul is not a troublemaker. He's not like that situation. He was instead a peacemaker. He brings people to God with love and with respect. Instead of putting them down... Uh, for the worship of false gods, he finds some common ground here with the people of Athens. He realizes that the people of Athens are spiritual people. And I would submit that the people of South Carolina are spiritual people as well. And everyone is searching. They have a God-centered hole in their heart, searching for God. 
He looked at them and he said, this is verse 22. People of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without even knowing him, I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hand, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life and breath and all things. And then skipping down to verse 27, he continues, he says, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might find him, groping for him and finding him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him, he lives and moves and has his being, as also some of you own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. He, he knew their culture. He, he quoted their own poetry. In that short amount of time, he gathered a lot of facts. No one likes to be put down for their faith or their beliefs. When we talk to people about Jesus, we want to simply, and, and, and most importantly, it is important just simply to introduce them to Jesus not to debate their values, not to debate their beliefs, but just simply share the truth of how he has affected me and how he has affected you. How has he changed me? How has he changed you? So we see that Paul goes to the people and he gauges them. He shows respect to them and their culture. And then thirdly, we see that Paul goes and he states his faith very clearly. Now we might say, well, yeah, that's pretty easy for Paul. I mean, after all, he's one of the greatest theologians of all times and you can't do any Christian work uh, in theology unless you confront Paul and read about Paul and read what Paul wrote. But the faith that Paul proclaims here to the men of Athens is very clear and it's just simple statements. Basically, he says, there is a God, and he really does exist. He made us, and he made the rest of the universe. He loves us, and he wants us to seek him and to serve him. In fact, he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, so that we might be able to find him and have a personal relationship with him. I think when many preachers stand up here and they say, you know, you need to go out and you need to share your faith. You need to share the gospel with others. A lot of us sit in the pews and we say, yeah, right, that's not going to happen. But I know that you think that many times, and I do too, I don't know all the answers. I'm uncertain what somebody's going to ask me. How, how, how am I going to say what I need to say? I mean, after all, I've never been to seminary completely. I've taken some seminary, but I'm certainly not as smart as Nathan back there, and I'm not as smart as Stuart. What if somebody asks me a question and I don't know the answer to it? How can I share my faith? 
But you don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to have all the education. I think many of us wait and wait and wait and wait. Well, when we get enough knowledge, you'll never get enough knowledge. You just simply need to share. You don't need to explain the Trinity or you don't need to explain predestination to somebody right out of the chute. And you don't have to explain transubstantiation, whatever the heck that is. Now, that's something we deal with in, in Belize. You don't have to suddenly be, begin to talk about all the complexities of doctrine and theology. Instead, you just simply have to talk about a relationship, a relationship with God who made you and who loves you who made us and loves us, who wants us to seek him. That is what Paul tells the philosophers in Athens about. Now, Paul is a highly educated man. He's talking to highly educated philosophers. And while he mentioned a few doctrinal statements in passing, the center of his talk then is this, verse 27. Seek God in the hopes that you might find him. And he reminds them that this one true God is not far from each one of us. You are simply being asked to invite people into a relationship, a relationship with God who loves them and who made them and who cares for them. You and I have the power to turn the world upside down. Not as troublemakers, not as terrorists, but to change the world for better and to invite people to join in a loving relationship with God. At the end of the verse, uh, the chapter, verse 34 says, As Paul departs, but some men joined him and believed. When was the last time Someone believed because of your testimony. First, you must go to them. Then, you must get to know people more than just superficially. You need to know about what they're thinking spiritually. And lastly, you must share your faith. A story about what Jesus did for you and what he did for me. And you know what? The Holy Spirit will do the rest. We can't save anybody. The Holy Spirit does the rest. So our charge today is stop sitting in the boat and waiting for a fish to land in your lap. Pick up your fishing line and start fishing. I want to end with the words of our Savior, Jesus Christ, as recorded in Matthew four nineteen, where Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So I want to ask you this morning, are you following Jesus today? If you're not following Jesus today, I urge you to get that straight today because none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. And if you are following Jesus today, then you have a story to tell. You need to get out your fishing pole and start making disciples as you are going. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, using us, Lord, as your hands and feet to share your word. Lord, you do the saving through your Holy Spirit. 
but Lord, you choose to use our stories and you work in our lives and we thank you for that. Lord, help us to have boldness and courage to be just able to share a simple uh, story about our relationship with you. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. And Lord, I just thank you for being in our presence and having your Holy Spirit fill our lives. In Christ's name I pray, amen.